0: Ninth
1: Story Studios, giving Story a voice. Hi, this is Nelson Piles from Ninth Story Studios. And I am the librarian, star of the Wicked Library, and the private collector, and it goes on and on. All uh, right. And we both wanted to remind you to do the 5. That's right, kiddies. We want you all to take care of yourselves. So pay attention. The first one is to wash your hands often. Two is if you cough or sneeze, do it in your elbow, please. <laughs> <Yeah. coughs> oh man, that's that's disgusting. Pick that up. <laughs> Oopsie daisy. 3 Don't touch your face. Especially if you don't have one. (laughs) Four, keep a safe distance if you must go out. At least six feet apart, boils and ghouls. And five, if you don't have to go out, stay home. There's so much to do at home, like read. All right, everybody be safe. If you want more information, go to www.cdc.gov. And from all of us at Ninth Story, everybody be safe. Thank you. Yes, everybody be safe. Now then, kiddies, keep listening for something that I'm sure to be the main attraction for. (laughs) Seriously, be safe, everyone. You're listening to The Wicked Library.
2: (laughs) We know as a listener of The Wicked Library, you're not just a podcast listener. You're a lover of books, story, and storytelling. And, of course, great narration. That's why we're proud to partner with Audible. Not only are we fans of Audible here at the Wicked Library, but many of our authors and voice actors have written work and narrated content for Audible. So if you love what we do, you're sure to find lots to love on Audible. Plus, you can visit audible.com slash wicked or text wicked to 500-500 to start a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook title today. Now, We're sure most of you know Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks, offering bestsellers, celebrity memoirs, and self-development titles. Some of you may not know that they also offer podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals you won't find anywhere else. Every month, Audible members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. With Audible, you can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. We know most of you listen to the Wicked Library on your smartphones and tablets, And you can easily install the free Audible app on your same devices. If you use more than one device, you can even listen across devices without losing your spot. Not sure what to try? One of your favorite storytellers here on the Wicked Library, Graham Rowett, has a vast catalog of narration on Audible. Two of our favorites told by Graham are The Illumination by Kevin Brockmeyer, which Bookless calls a radiant, bewitching, and profoundly inquisitive novel of sorrow, perseverance, and wonderment. We think it's one of Graham's best performances ever, and you can get it as your free title as part of your free 30-day trial by going to audible.com wicked or by texting WICKED to 500-500. We know, you're horror fans. So how about another told by Graham Rowett, Unfair Play, A Horror Story? by Harambee K. Grayson. It's a dark tale about a man who uses his time in prison to hone his skills so he can be more effective at ridding the world of those he deems as soulless. With Audible, you can listen while commuting, cooking, exercising, gardening, relaxing at home, quarantining, whatever you're doing. Visit audible.com wicked or text wicked to 500-500 to start your free trial today. That's audible.com wicked or text wicked to 500-500. Hello, and welcome to episode number 1002 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course we love hearing from you. The Librarian wanted to let you know that our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, is now free on Kindle, March 29th, March 30th, and March 31st stories as you stay at home or if you're an essential worker enjoy a good read on your break also grab your free kindle copy of the lift nine stories of transformation both anthologies are packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show and both also feature beautiful cover art and illustrations by jeanette andromeda they're fantastic collections and we know you'll want copies for your own wicked library get them now in your kindle store at amazon.com today's episode features a dark tale by an author new to our show the amazingly talented lawrence c Connolly. the story is told by the author and accompanied by a custom score written by our resident composer nico Vitese of we talk of dreams please if you enjoy the story find lawrence's work and buy it it keeps him making more You can learn more about Lawrence and find links to his work on his bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked.
0: I did not know her name, but she wore a light jacket over a set of hospital scrubs, so I knew that about her. She worked in healthcare, possibly heading home after working the night shift. I would need to confirm that. She carried a canvas tote over one shoulder, swayed it in time to the song playing in her ears. I could hear the buds crackling but could not place the tune. She had a way about her, that certain earthy innocence you see in young people, an alluring vitality that draws the eye, stirs the blood. She walked past a line of stores, Verizon, McDonald's, Rite Aid, A horn honked beyond the curb, a bus thundered by. Morning Rush was in full swing, but she seemed apart from all that, easily making her way along the sidewalk until she turned right and put the rat race rumble behind her. Storefronts gave way to apartment blocks and then to rows of 100-year-old homes. She slowed, took a left, and stepped into a driveway. I might have turned to get a sense of the place, but I could not look away from her. It is often like that, the first time I see them. She thumbed a garage door opener, an electric motor whirred, and then... My alarm went off. 7.30 a.m. I hit snooze, then lay in the darkness, thinking, letting the dream settle into memory. The first few minutes after waking are crucial. The conscious mind will change things if you are not careful. It will add details, overwrite the dream's memory with things you merely think you saw. The trick is to recall without revising. I find that keeping the room dark helps. It forces my mind back on itself while the impressions are still fresh. In that darkness, I saw her face again, noted the way she had seemed to look at me as she hit the remote that opened the garage but her gaze focused only on the rising door. As far as she knew, I did not exist. I generally have two kinds of dreams. In one, I am completely invisible, as if packed into a box of one-way glass and dropped into a world where I have no discernible presence. I do not participate. I only watch Such dreams are completely different from the second kind, the ones in which the box of one-way glass becomes a fully realized stranger, a character through whom I participate in the action of the dream. With rare exceptions, there is no other kind. The dreams are almost never about me. I suppose that says something about my psychological profile. Make of that what you will. The alarm blared again at 7.54. I got up. Time to run. I always jog the same route. Down Neville Street to the mouth of the old Shenley train tunnel, then south along the tracks until houses give way to the weedy trees and tangled brush of Panther Hollow. Night lingers in the valley, hemmed in by steep walls and iron bridges. There is no traffic, only the occasional rumble of a CSX freight. If I stay clear of the tracks, I can let my legs guide me, while my thoughts turn inward. The houses along her street had all been of a design called American Foursquare. As the name implies, such homes feature a quartet of box-shaped rooms on each floor. Construction is usually brick walls with iron rails, concrete stairs, and covered porches giving each house a bland but functional exterior. Unfortunately, the four-square pattern is not specific to any city, which meant that the woman could have been living just about anywhere in the northeast or central United States, in any one of the Rust Belt towns that my dreams had sent me to in the past. Over the years, I have tracked prey as far west as Chicago, as far east as Trenton. Too often... I am unable to narrow things down. The locations elude me, and I never find who I am looking for. Other times, I determine the place, but not the target. Fortunately, every so often, I get lucky. In this case, it occurred to me that there was something familiar about the shops and restaurants that the woman had passed on her way home. It was not the places themselves. McDonald's and Rite Aid are just as common as four-square homes. Rather, it was the sequence of those restaurants and shops, the order in which the woman passed them before turning off the main drag. I was pretty sure I had been on that street, driven it many times, even walked it on occasion. If my hunch was right, this woman did not live in another state or even another city. She was local. My run took me to the end of Panther Hollow, a stretch where trees give way to row houses and narrow sidewalks. I jogged uphill, out of the valley, and into the heat of the rising sun. I pulled off my sweatshirt, knotted it at my waist, and continued south to the former site of the old U.S. Steelworks, the place where my father had been one of the last full-timers to retire on a pension. He even managed to get in a few good years of retirement before his cancer ate him alive. My family had expected me to follow that tradition. But the mill started laying off workers when I was still in grade school. Younger guys were furloughed first, then brought back piecemeal as old-timers retired. By the time I got out of high school, the mill was shuttered. It is completely gone now. Tall stacks and blast furnaces swept away as if they never existed. Nothing there but some new-age office buildings and a wide swath of empty land extending from South Oakland to the river's edge. That mill's demise is how I ended up in the military, a career move that eventually paid for my education and made me the first member of my family to graduate college. I continued running until I reached the slope above the river then turned and headed home again. My thoughts were already shifting back to the woman. She lived close. Now, I needed to find her. In my bedroom, shelved amid my alphabetized collection of books, I have an album containing the photos of nearly all the people I have encountered in my dreams. Some photos are clipped from newspaper obituaries or printed from the Internet. Others are ones I've taken myself. The latter are the most important. They are the ones that give my life meaning. Looking at them helps ground me in ways I cannot fully explain. I sometimes look at those photos when I return from my runs. But on that morning, I had just enough time to shower and change before heading out to work. I'm a part-time research librarian, a position that has allowed me to amass quite a catalog of random information. I know a little, About a lot of things, and when there is something I want to explore fully, I have the skills and resources to become an expert. I know how to tie knots, pick locks, bypass security systems, and cook over the counter medications to create fast acting poisons. I know the position of vital nerves and arteries in the human body, and how to induce asphyxiation so that it will appear to be the result of natural causes. Most importantly, I know how to render myself invisible. Not just in my dreams, but in the real world as well. It is all in the way you dress and move. I would teach you, but then I might be as afraid of you as you might be of me. I am usually scheduled to work the library's research desk three days a week. I do not need the income. I live frugally enough to get by on my pension and disability and still manage to keep a stash of bills in a money box beneath my bed. It helps cover emergencies when they arise, and I like answering questions, particularly the random ones that come in over the phone. Those are always more interesting than the ones people send via email or ask in person. Reason being, if you have email, you have a computer. If you have a computer, you can Google or Alexa that question on your own. Likewise, if you are in the library to ask the question in person, you probably know how to look up the answer yourself. But people without computers or library access? All they got is their landlines. So they call me with their questions. Things like, Are left-handed people left-footed? How long can you live if you only eat pasta? What is Prince Henry's last name? And then there are the darker ones. What chemicals dissolve bones? Can you electrocute someone with batteries? How long does it take to suffocate? Most of those I do not need to look up. When I got off work that day, I went for a drive. My car is nondescript gray Chevy, no chrome, the sort of thing you see but do not remember. I steered north through the east end, then west along 5th Avenue, passing scores of working-class homes along the way, mostly brick, built when industry was booming. But I was not interested in them, just checking them out until I turned onto a one-way street running east. That's where I found the same succession of shops and restaurants I had seen in the dream. I watched for the turn missed it the first time, had to circle back. It came up fast, a sharp right past new apartment buildings, then on into a neighborhood that had defied gentrification. I slowed, turned left, and suddenly I was there. Her place was the fourth house on the right, one of the few with a garage. Most residents parked on the street, and all the spots were taken. I slowed to a crawl, studied her house as I coasted by. The front door looked old, weathered fiberglass, no storm door. The windows beside it were single-hung, top-latched. Upstairs windows were the same except for the third-floor dormer, which was side-hinged. A driver came up behind me, tapped his horn for me to move. I gave the house a final look. The garage door was probably retrofitted with a hackable opener. All told, the garage looked to be the home's weakest link. The driver behind me honked again, flashed his lights. I drove on, considered finding a parking place and checking out her backyard, but my head was starting to hurt. It was the familiar throb behind one eye that usually signals an episode. It was time to go home, sit in the dark, and hope for the best. The best did not come. An hour later, the pain felt like a jackhammer in my head. It would get worse before it got better, but I did not want to take any meds. The generics the VA gives me are all maintenance drugs. You need to take them for weeks before they kick in, and once they do, you risk getting seizures if you stop. I also have a bottle of immediate release OxyContin purchased from a local guy that I got to know during my third deployment. He was a medic then. Now he's an off-grid doctor. Cash only. No records. His pills do not so much kill the pain as make it irrelevant, which would have been just fine with me if they did not also mess with my sleep. I could not risk that, especially when there was so much more I needed to dream. I took a melatonin, drank a beer, put a heating pad on my pillow, and tried to sleep. I drifted. The pain followed. I saw her getting ready for work then trailed her out the door before the pain woke me a little after 10.30. Since I dream in real time, that pretty much confirmed that her shift at the hospital ran from 11 to 7. I tried getting back to sleep, and when I did, I saw her making her rounds. There were balloons in some of the rooms, stuffed toys. She worked the children's ward. The pain woke me again after midnight, I repositioned the heating pad, drifted off again sometime after one. And so it went until I found myself sitting on the side of the bed, smoking a cigarette, feeling agitated. I don't smoke a lot. I am what you call a chipper, meaning I'm not addicted. I limit my use to two a day, conventional cigarettes only, fire and tobacco. No vaping. That stuff will kill you. It was 6.14 a.m., She'd be heading home soon. I could try getting back to sleep or drive out to her house, be there when she arrived. That second option seemed like the obvious choice. I finished the cigarette and went to my walk-in closet, dug out some appropriate clothes, not black. Black looks threatening. I settled on a navy windbreaker, gray T-shirt, charcoal jeans, all dark enough to blend in with the early morning shadows. I pulled them on and headed downstairs. My house is a wood frame Victorian that belonged to my grandmother until a few years ago. Its exterior woodwork is done up in Painted Lady fashion, bright shades of yellow, blue, red, and chocolate. I considered having it all painted over when I inherited the place, but my first priority was the basement, which needed to be soundproofed, climate-controlled, and secured with a keypad lock. I stopped there before heading out, grabbed some gear, binoculars, Ropes. Taser. I stowed them in a lightweight backpack. Carried them out to my car. Half past six. Traffic was still light. I made it to her neighborhood with time to spare. Parked a block away. Backtracked and took position in the shadows across the street. Lights were already on inside. Shortly before seven. The lights went off. The garage door rumbled up. A car backed out. Two women inside both mid-twenties, roommates with day jobs. When they left, the place stayed dark. I took up my binoculars and studied the windows. The first floor latches were all in locked position. I couldn't see the ones upstairs, but there was an even chance at least one of those was disengaged. That's often the case. People open a window on a nice day, close it in a hurry when the weather turns, then forget to twist the lever. The dormer window on the third floor was empty, no blind or curtains. A portion of water-stained ceiling was visible through the glass, as was a section of wall and the angled shadows of stacked furniture. The space was evidently used for storage. A person who got in there could bide his time, strike when ready. I also observed the other houses, took note of which ones had lighted windows, which ones stayed dark. In all, it was a quiet neighborhood. Odds were that no one would notice when I made my move. And even if they did, I doubted they would get in the way. People like to mind their business. When they see something mildly suspicious, their first impulse is to ignore it. The sun was coming up. I checked the time. 7.28. Then turned my gaze to the end of the street. A minute later, there she was. I stowed the binoculars, and then my alarm went off, 7.30 a.m. I sat up, head pounding, I reached for my cigarettes, none there, of course not, I do not smoke. I considered staying put, giving myself time to process the dream. It had been that second kind, one observed through the eyes of a stranger, and what I had seen convinced me I had no time to lie in the darkness and let the dreams settle in the memory. I knew the dangers of rushing off without collecting my thoughts, but I was frightened for her, felt I had no choice but to take immediate action. It was a fatal moment, one that I would still go back and change if I could. I snapped on a light, dressed, and hurried down the hall. My apartment is in the basement of a subdivided brownstone. Originally built for a single family, the building is now home to a colony of students and pensioners. I am one of the latter, though you would not know it to look at me. I am a trim, 140 pounds, no belly bulge or love handles, body mass, 19.5, all muscle. It is pretty much the body I had at 25. The rooms of my apartment are arranged in a line along a narrow corridor, bedroom, bathroom, ghost shop kitchen. Only the kitchen has a window, though it is not a proper one, just a glass block rectangle positioned high above the sink. No need for curtains. You cannot see in or out, but morning light seeps through just fine. On that morning, the dawn was tinted red. Like the saying, red skies at morning, sailors take warning. An omen I should have heeded. I mixed a protein drink and headed down the hall to the ghost shop. For nearly three years now, my dreams have been all about victims and predators. I do not understand how or why the dreams come to me. I only know that they started with a roadside bomb and a one-way ticket out of Afghanistan. They continued during rehab and the long convalescence that involved four procedures to remove shrapnel from my head and face. They never got it all, put me near a metal detector and I will set it off. The VA psychologist tells me my dreams are not premonitions. He says they are about guilt. Three men under my command died in a roadside ambush while I lay by the burning Humvee, unconscious, bleeding on the pavement. Suppressed guilt, the psychologist told me when I first mentioned the dreams. The dreams are your subconscious searching for things to act on. For a while, I tried believing him, But the dreams were too vivid to ignore, and when I researched the details they were giving me, I found they aligned with news stories of abductions, disappearances, murders, abuses. In time, I came to see them for what they are, premonitions, calls to action. The room I call my ghost shop has a drill press, die grinder, and an assortment of tools needed to assemble and maintain the guns I use against the predators. Assembled from parts purchased on the internet and from local hardware stores, the weapons are untraceable. They are also the only legal way a man with my psychological profile can acquire a firearm. I have built over a dozen of them over the years. You have probably heard about similar homemade weapons in the news. Reporters often call them ghost guns. I put one of the pistols in my jacket, hurried out to my car, and drove into the morning rush. The streets were jammed. I swerved through traffic, ran yellow lights, accelerated, braked, accelerated again until I nearly took out a pedestrian at a crosswalk, missed her by inches. "'Asshole!' she called me. "'Crazy-ass fuck!' I gripped the wheel, avoided her gaze, tried making myself invisible. It did not work. I was off my game. She glared at me, then moved on. The light changed. I hit the gas. My memory of the dream was fading, and since I had not taken time to lock down the details, I knew that some of that memory had already changed. Nevertheless, one thing was undeniably clear. The man that I had been in my dream had done this sort of thing before, and he had done it often enough to make peace with who he was. I was not like that indeed i was a long way from feeling comfortable about acting on these dream assignments that nature or fate or whatever you want to call it had set for me unlike the sicko in my dream i was going to need to set my revulsion aside stay calm long enough to do what needed to be done and hope my emotions did not replace the dreams details with things i thought should be there i slowed as i passed the familiar line of shops and restaurants made the turn and continued to her street. Her house was quiet, dark. I saw the narrow pass between close-set walls where the stalker had hidden. I drove past it, continued on for half a block, then wedged in beside a fire hydrant. I feared someone might shout at me as I left the car. Hey, hey you, that's a hydrant. You can't park there. But no one saw. The street stayed quiet. I tried not to rush slow and easy that is the trick to not being noticed i continued to the side of her house then on to her backyard where i found a porch smaller than the one in front i looked through the back door window into the kitchen dishes in the sink pots on the stove no one there i tried the door it was locked an aluminum downspout ran along a wall I climbed it to the porch roof, crept along it to a second-floor window. That was where I found her. In her room, in bed, sleeping with her face turned toward me. Her features were not exactly as I remembered. Another reminder that dream memories are not fixed like photographs. I cupped my hand to the glass to get a good look at the corners of the room. There was no sign of an intruder. And that was when a voice called to me from below. Who are you? froze it was a woman in a baseball cap overalls work gloves she crouched in a next-door garden uprooted weed in one hand trowel in the other she had probably been watching the whole time that's not your house what are you doing i did not try to explain did not attempt to engage her at all instead i turned away to keep her from getting a good look at me dropped down on the other side of the porch and hurried back to my car It was clear what had happened. The Predator had come and gone. Unlike me, he was biding his time, waiting for the right moment to strike. He might have been prepared to act that morning if the opportunity arose, but his primary goal had been reconnaissance, assessing the scene, mastering the lay of the land, and taking no chances. Ultimately, he had decided to wait. I drove, turned left at the end of her street, then left again to the place where I would seen him park in my dream. His car was not there. More proof that he had come and gone, left the scene even before I had left my home. I would have known that if the alarm had not gone off when it did, if I had not panicked and hurried off without thinking things through. My pulse raced. My head throbbed. You're better than this! I shouted it aloud as I steered back into the morning traffic. Don't rush. Plan. Sharp flashes of pain shot along my temples, across my brow, down into my eyes. I parked and ran into a drugstore, got an energy drink and a bottle of ibuprofen. Those 200 milligram pills do not work on nerve pain unless you take a lot of them, so I took four for starters, washed them down with the drink. Caffeine helps, interferes with the pain receptors. Back in the car, I forced myself to stay put and assess the dream. The head pain was a major distraction, and the pills would not kick in for at least a quarter of an hour or more, but I needed to consider what I knew before making any more mistakes. With my eyes clamped against the pain, I tried recalling the look of the Predator's home, his sunlit bedroom, walk-in closet, remodeled basement. My impressions of these things were sketchy at best and they became sketchier the more I tried bringing them into focus. I had a sense of what I had dreamed, but I could not picture the details. It is like that sometimes, like a fog bank that seems to vanish the closer you get to it. By contrast, my sense of the home's exterior was vividly clear, particularly the woodwork that his grandmother had done up in Painted Lady fashion. He did not approve of it, and intended to paint it over as soon as he had time, That was probably why those details came through so clearly. They bothered him, so he could not help noticing them each time he left the house. One of the tricks to remembering dreams is to lock in on a clear point of reference and let it lead you to another. Eventually, you will start recalling more elusive things, like a freestanding garage behind his house, an alley leading to the street out back. A main street lined with rows and rows of century-old trees. I remembered those trees now. Tall and well-tended, with massed straight trunks and spreading branches that formed a tunnel of green along the street leading to his home. You will not see trees like that in my neighborhood. They are part of another world. I live in one of the lucky Rust Belt towns that remade itself after the death of heavy industry. When the mills vanished... Lighter industries stepped up to take their place, software, robotics and medicine became the major players, and as a result, a new economy rose from the ashes. That is the official word anyhow. The reality is more complicated. You can see it in the old neighborhoods, the ones that have escaped gentrification. Hemmed in by rivers, hills, and winding streets, these enclaves are defined by ways of life as old as the European immigrants who settled them to work the mills and mines that once defined the region. For the most part, such communities settled downwind of the mills, in neighborhoods where you can still see buildings stained black from centuries-old smoke. But if you travel upwind, you will soon find soot-stained foursquares giving way to ivied painted Victorians, and stone cottages. That was where I needed to go, into that other world. I woke to the sound of tapping, looked up to see a meter cop peering through the windshield. She had her ticket book out, ready to write me up. I raised the seat, put my hands on the wheel, and started the car. I steered to the next cross street, then reversed course, and headed into the upwind hills. Before enlisting in the service, I worked the usual string of low-level jobs, culminating with a few months behind the wheel of a yellow cab. Those were the days before Uber and Lyft, when a kid who liked to drive could walk into the East End taxi office and get hired onto the midnight shift. I drove everywhere, more out of ignorance than bravery. As a result, I got to know the city, particularly those areas I never would have visited otherwise. Surprisingly, It was a trip to one of the so-called safe neighborhoods that opened my eyes. I was driving a couple home from downtown. He was coked up. She was pissed. I drove them north of the city, to one of those plans where the streets are all named after trees, Cedar Drive, Dogwood Court, Oakwood Street, Pine Road. The couple started fighting before we left the city, calling each other, cunt and cocksucker as if I was not there to hear them. Suddenly, bam, I hear this loud thump like a melon hitting a sidewalk. It shakes the cab. I look in the mirror, and there she is slumped against the side window, dazed after being slammed against the glass, and I'm like, what the fuck? He glares at me in the rear view. This doesn't concern you. The hell it doesn't, it's my cab. So he lays into me, calls me all kinds of shit, worse than he was calling her. I pull over, tell him to get out and walk home. He won't. He tells me that what I need to do is mind my business and drive, because the only reason he will get out of the cab is to kick my low-life ass. He can probably do it, too. He's twice my size. But right about now, the woman leans away from the window, straightens up and shouts, You son of a bitch! Well, naturally, I figure she means him. But then she says shut up and drive us home i cannot believe it i just sit there stunned so she lets me have it again tells me that her father's a judge and that she and her coked up husband and judge daddy will sue my worthless ass if i do not make like a cabby and drive the whole thing still pisses me off when i think about it i quit the job the next day turned in my manifest and walked off with a new sense of how the world works I also took with me a mental map of the city, one that still serves me well today. I drove by reflex, letting the dream memory guide me into a world of high taxes, watered lawns, and rolling hills. I studied the houses as I drove, and before long I saw it, a little smaller than I remembered, but definitely the same place. The painted façade was unmistakable. There was plenty of parking on the street. But I drove on, parked a block away, backtracked on foot. His freestanding garage was right where it should have been. I circled it, searched for a window. There was none. No way to tell if his car was in there, but the house looked quiet enough, curtains drawn, no sign of movement. I crossed to the back porch, knocked on the door. A dog barked a block away. I pressed my face to the glass looked inside at a spacious kitchen vintage stove and fridge new toaster and microwave i sensed i was seeing these things for the first time it was possible that i had forgotten them but equally likely that i had never dreamed them at all despite the structures we impose on dreams after waking the raw experience of them is fragmented and incomplete shifting constantly between the sensory and the abstract It occurred to me that the only sense I had of the home's interior were vague impressions, none of which involved the things I saw as I peered through the back door window. The lights were off. The door locked. I would learn nothing more by standing outside. I checked the windows, found one unlatched, and climbed inside. There is something unsettling about entering the homes of strangers. It is partly the smells, the aromas of unfamiliar foods, the exhaled breaths of lives not your own. But there was another smell here, the unmistakable essence of dog, more evidence of which sat on the floor in the form of a large water bowl. But the dog was not home either. The place remained still, indifferent to my intrusion. A basement door stood in the corner. I ran a hand along the frame, Something was missing. Though I had no clear memory of the door, I had the distinct impression that it had been fitted with a keypad lock. I remembered the man contemplating such a device as he filled his backpack with gear, but there was no keypad. I also had the impression that he had remodeled the basement after inheriting the place from his grandmother, yet I found no indication of soundproofing or climate control when I opened the unlocked door and stepped onto a dim landing that led to a flight of rough-hewn stairs. I groped for a wall switch, found none. The wooden treads descended into darkness. I took out my phone, thumbed the flashlight app, used it to light the way. Details emerged as I descended, cobwebbed beams, tools, a workbench, washer and dryer, wooden planks on an earthen floor. Nothing about it seemed familiar. My best bet was to leave and hope I had time to let another round of premonitions lead me to the right place. I pocketed the phone and turned to leave. Outside, a dog barked. The sound was close, just beyond the porch. I froze, listened. Another bark, closer, and with it the thump of someone climbing the back stairs. Then a voice. Hey! Hey! "'This way! Inside!' I could imagine what was going on. The dog was sniffing around the garage, probing the ground I had walked while searching for a window. The man whistled, then continued to the stairs, footsteps changing pitch as they reached the back porch. A moment later, I heard the fast scratch of claws crossing the boards. The screen door opened. Keys rattled. A deadbolt clicked. I retreated down the stairs, crouched in the darkness." claws skittered across the kitchen floor the dog still tracking my scent hey where you going the man said his voice as scratchy as the sound of the claws a dog appeared on the landing silhouetted against the sunlit kitchen stocky round head cropped ears pit bull a second pit bull came up behind it they stood together sniffed the darkness The man's heels thumped across the kitchen floor, paused at the window I had opened to let myself in. He slammed it with a bang. What the fuck's going on? The dogs barked. The man appeared, stood beside them. He was a big guy, as stocky as a pit bull. Alexa, the man said. Lights on. Fluorescent bars flickered. And there I was, crouched beside a line of garden tools. The dogs braced, ready to spring. I needed to do something, disarm the situation, convince the guy it was all a mistake. Sorry, I said. This isn't… Burger, the man roared. Burger, burger. It was an attack command. The dogs charged onto the stairs. I grabbed my gun and fired. The report thundered from the basement walls, slammed my ears like hammers, left them ringing as the lead dog went limp and tumbled down to the earthen floor. The second dog leaped over it, I fired again, missed, the dog flew toward me, clamped its jaws over my arm. Teeth dug in, I dropped the gun, and now the man was coming at me too. He grabbed a pickaxe from the line of hanging garden tools, swung it hard, I rolled. The blade blurred, struck the ground beside my head, I did not hear the impact, my ears were ringing from the gunshots, giving me a strange sense of detachment as the man worked the blade free. And still the dog held on, shaking its head, working its teeth down to the bone of my upper arm as I recovered the gun with my free hand. The man leaned back for another swing. I fired, hit him in the chest. It did not stop him. He was running on adrenaline. We all were. The pickaxe arced toward me. I rolled clear, fired again. That time did it. He dropped the pickaxe, then folded up, went down like his strings had been cut. But the dog still had me, blood frothing down my arm. Over the floor, I pressed the gun to its head. Fired. The dog went limp, slumped against me, but its jaws stayed clamped. I had to pry myself free. Blood bubbled through my shredded sleeve. I tugged off my belt, made a noose above the wound, cinched it tight. The room was spinning. I pulled myself up on a table, took a few deep breaths, looked around everything had that glow things get when you are lightheaded. i let go of the table stumbled toward the foot of the stairs caught myself on the rail my hearing was coming back i heard the thump of my gun as i dropped it on the floor no point taking it with me unlike the blood in the pitbull's mouth and the dark smears i had left on the floor and table the ghost gun was untraceable as for the blood Its DNA alone would not lead back to me. It could only serve to incriminate me if I became a suspect, and I had no intention of letting that happen. I kicked off my bloody shoes, climbed the stairs, entered the kitchen. I washed up in the sink, then took a jacket from a closet in the hall. It was a big fit. I draped it over my shoulders, did not bother trying to work my burgered arm into the sleeve. I buttoned the front. And walked out the back door. I took it slow. That is the key to being invisible. No running, no looking around. I returned to the car, gripped the wheel with one hand, and drove. I stopped home, put on fresh shoes, and grabbed the box of emergency funds from beneath my bed. Then I called my medic friend. He was waiting for me when I got to his place. I told him I had been jogging when the dog came at me. I got scared, I told him, stumbled and fell, and that's when it grabbed me. So that's your story? Yeah. Where'd it bite you? I showed him. Shit. You should go to the VA. They'll file a dog report. Yeah, they'll do that. And then they'll go looking for the dog and pound it for observation. Problem? I like dogs. Hate seeing them locked up. He knew it was bullshit, but he did not care. He stitched and bandaged the wound as best he could, told me he could get a round of post exposure rabies vaccine if I wanted it. It'll cost you, though. The stuff ain't cheap. I said I would be okay, paid him in cash, and went home with some black market antibiotics. Funny thing, my head had stopped hurting after I found that West Side Victorian. But once I was back home, wham, the pain came back hard. To make things worse, my arm was killing me, and compounding it all was the mental pain of realizing how totally I had screwed up. I had rushed from my apartment that morning with the intention of stopping a pointless act of predation, and in the process, I had committed one just as bad. This was truly one for the record books. I had fucked up totally and realizing that hurt more than any nerve pain I had ever known. The bottle of illegal oxy called out to me from the medicine cabinet, and I answered. Recommended dose for extreme pain was one tablet every four hours. I took two, went to bed, got up half an hour later and took another. After that, I slept. As I said before, my dreams tend to be premonitions. I enter them as either an invisible observer or a complete stranger. But tonight's dream was the other kind. In it, I played myself. I was back in the basement of the stranger's home. The dead dog lay atop me, its flanks still hot from the fight. I pushed it off, looked over at the man sprawled near the line of garden tools. His eyes were open, glaring. I could not look at them. I crawled to the table, pulled myself up, the room spun, I held on, tried getting my balance, and that was when I saw it. I gasped, then opened my eyes to my darkened bedroom. I was wide awake, soaking wet, cold sweat permeated my clothes, I wanted to get up, change into something dry, but I forced myself to stay put, process what I had just seen before it faded from memory. My heart pounded. The pain was back, like electrodes firing in my temples, I forced myself to tune it out, concentrate on the dream. My dreams about myself are never premonitions. They are memories. Sometimes they are about things that I have suppressed while awake. Other times, they are simply about the tales that failed to register while I busied myself with other things. Things like trying to get out of a house after killing a man and two dogs, things like I closed my eyes, not to sleep this time, but to concentrate. My head throbbed, focus. I remembered the feel of the table as I leaned against it, the press of its corner against my waist, the roughness of its bare wood under my hands. I smelled the basement, its earthy dampness now laced with the stink of blood. The room stopped spinning, and suddenly I saw it, ten feet away partially hidden in shadows, but nonetheless there. It was a foam core partition, a solid wall set up to seal off a section of the basement, and in its center, a door, and beside the door, mounted to the wall and protected by a transparent cover, a keypad lock. At the time, it had registered as no more than a blur of shadow, something far less important than staying alive and getting away but it had been there and now I remembered lying on my sweat-soaked sheets I laughed aloud to the darkened room when I felt well enough to drive I went back to her neighborhood parked on a side street and walked north until the four square houses gave way first to apartment blocks then to shops and restaurants with familiar logos Rite Aid McDonald's horizon I walked as far as the children's hospital then turned and retraced my steps back to her street I repeated the route four times then I saw her half a block away light jacket over a set of scrubs feet stepping to the 4-4 beat of crackling earbuds just like the first time I saw her only she was not a dream this time she was real and she was coming toward me I slowed down, pretended to study my phone. She did not notice as I snapped her picture, just kept walking, away from my dream, out of my life, into my collection. After that, I drove home, took a melatonin, drank a beer, and slept through the day, 8am to dusk. No dreams, but they will come, when they do.
2: I will be ready. With the pandemic in full swing, people are stocking up on food supplies and staples, and retreating into bunkers, hurriedly dug backyard tunnels, and other undisclosed locations. But you might also want to stock up on stories and entertainment, too. If you love the Wicked Library, and why would you be listening if you don't, we'd like to remind you that we rely upon the support of our listeners to keep making the show you love. While our free show does contain ads to help us offset the costs of production, the show is expensive to produce, and without Patreon and website members, we couldn't keep making the show in its current form. Season 10 has over 20 full-sized episodes, custom-written just for us, by some really big names in horror, with amazing voice actors telling the tales, and custom scores by the amazing Nico Vitesse. Plus, we're making several all-new private collector episodes. Not only do our supporters get the satisfaction of knowing they're a part of making the show possible, but we give out wicked fun rewards like access to our archives, ad-free shows, and more. Plus, at the $5 a month and above level, you get more content, like our show Wicked Fairy Tales, as told by your librarian. Private collector-level supporters hear our audio drama episodes several months before we share them with the full audience. And, of course, all of our content is ad-free for supporters, so you don't have to listen to stuff like this. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Library or at thewickedlibrary.com. We're working very hard to make the show sustainable, but we do need your help to do that.